Ring-a-ring-a-raspberry. The Quiet Men of England, number five. Minerva Nightingale. In which we put the pieces together. Alice Doohickey smoothed her apron down and adjusted the bobby pin in her mousy brown hair. She pushed open the door to the drawing room, curtsied awkwardly and cleared her throat. <coughs> Cookie was on the telephone apparatus and says to say tripe and onions and jam, roly-poly and custard today. Alice curtsied again and looked into the middle distance with an enthusiastic blankness. Miss Minerva Nightingale pursed her lips, replaced the porcelain teacup silently on its saucer, and wiped the corners of her mouth with a lace hanky, before placing it carefully back in her cardigan sleeve. Turning, she smiled wanly. Thank you, Alice. Do try and remember to breathe before you answer a call. There's nothing so dreadful as a girl that's red-faced in the middle of a sentence. Oh, and do try, Alice, to stand a little less... You're not related to the turret, so don't stand like one. Oh, and Alice, it's Mrs. Bumstead, not Cookie. The children call her Cookie. You're not a child, Alice. Alice Doohickey blushed under her bonnet, shook her head, and no marmed her way into a small occasional table by the door before edging out into the hallway. Minerva Nightingale turned once more to the window her gimlet eyes, all seeing from the casement window of the drawing-room of Honeysuckle Cottage, gazed mournfully out onto the world of Wesley Turpin. She was waiting for a crime to be committed. She waited every day for a crime to be committed. She stared out, focused on the possibility of crime happening right then, right there, right now. Wrongdoings, en route to school, any time now. Miss Nightingale had been born in the village and raised in the self-same cottage where she now stood, a near lifetime teetering on the brink of detection. Although only a part-time sleuth, her brain never ceased from its ineluctable path. Crime never slept, and neither did her mind. No time for a break. This was no St. Mary Mead, no Midsummer. It was neither Oxford nor Bergen. Crime didn't stop for a cup of tea, and Maureen, they've got their two for one back at Morrison's. Oh, I'll have a fond and fancy if you pass in the cupboard. Oh, I could have one. It won't kill me. It was that chap whose eyes are too close together. The one that was in him, I doubt, well, he did it. And with such ceaseless devotion to unearthing the means, motives, and opportunities of the criminal fraternity within Wesley Turpin, did Minerva Nightingale pass her spare time. Not that there was any crime in our idyllic hamlet, unless you count the teal slack Sunshine Jackson had won to the Harvest Festival, or the nap of a cloth on the billiard table at Bratton Poggs's. Such an absence of underworld activity, however, was not, to the steel-trap mind of Miss Nightingale, proof of the absence of crime. It just went to show how well hidden it was, how devious was the criminal mind at work in the shadows. So she stood vigilant, a thin grey ramrod-straight line between the right, the 
proper and the terrible potential of the ne'er-do-well. The scolding Sunshine Jackson had received, after all, had served as fair warning to those inclined towards the fracturing of the law. She put down her metaphorical magnifying glass and lab coat only between the hours of nine and three of a weekday, and only then after a fashion. Miss Nightingale, crime fighter by night, headmistress by day. Beside John's straggling fence that skirts the way was a Quonset hut of awkward vintage that had sheltered more asbestos in its walls than was strictly necessary the small school of Wesley Turpin. There had the boys and girls of the village well learned to trace the day's mysteries in Miss Nightingale's face. And there, too, they had been taught, until they were old enough to earn a little folding of their own, or even continue their schooling in Big Town. From time immemorial she had taught them their alphabets and their geometries and the principles of forensic pathology. It was here that a young Melton constable, short-trousered, had been schooled in his letters. Foreman Napier had been birched by that bookcase in the corner, which bespeaks a great deal. At this very desk, Bampton Fax had forgotten how to count more times than he had learned. Had he learned, of course, he would have been able to tell how many times he had forgotten. But he hadn't, so he couldn't. The room smelled, as all schoolrooms do, of chalk dust, conkers, and cigarettes. A pile of tattered hymnals stood by the desk on the dais where Miss Nightingale reigned. She only had the one board rubber, and times were tight, so she made do with projected Yattenden hymnals when it came to focusing a child's attention on the board. Robert Bridges had a certain heft that left an imprint on the young mind. Her desk drawer was necessarily full of contraband, including, but not limited to, a bottle of gin, a catapult, several marbles, and a packet of salacious playing cards. The ancient blackboard had been scrubbed clean and stood in several inches of coloured chalk dust and pencil shavings. On any given day, Miss Nightingale would set out a task on the board, sometimes Latin conjugations, sometimes the fauna of the Orkneys, sometimes injuries commonly caused by domestic burglaries, and set the children to their task, before sitting back down and staring determinedly out of the high windows of the schoolroom into the middle distance, where a crime might well be taking place. Playtimes came and went, and any incidents that occurred resulted in a necessary call to Inspector Leger de Main of the Education Authority, to whom the grim story would be as breathlessly whispered as it would be wearily half-listened to. Half an hour later, the inspector, complete with crumpled felt hat and soiled mackintosh, would ease his large frame out of an ancient rover and follow Miss Nightingale's fervid trail of clues to a miscreant child graffitiing on the ground. Patiently, he would explain that the arcane set of squares and numbers were not linked to an organized machinations of a local triad gang that had Mr. Pepys tied up in a disused cellar, but little young Jane Throttle's game of hopscotch. The only other regular occurrence was that the insatiable gourmand Milton Constable would be found in or around the school kitchen in search of a lunch that matched his robustious appetite. 
This would invariably coincide with his thrice-monthly appearance in the classroom for a series of lectures. These discourses would centre learnedly upon the vagaries of parish law and be delivered between an occasional gulp of confiscated gin. Retiring to the kitchen, he would partake of the best that Mrs. Bumstead had to offer, whilst all the while she would flutter around nervously, mopping her florid brow with a stained tea towel. This was just such one of those days, and a hazy late summer one at that. Melton Constable had offered to a mass of beaming infants a particularly vibrant peroration on arcane bylaws. His theme was a pet passion of his, relating to unadopted bridal ways, the use of firearms vis-à-vis -vis the occasional rambler, and the legalities thereof. Having worked himself up into an unusually ravenous state of peptic glee in his teaching, he had beetled off to the kitchen for a bite. A tray of tripe and onions later, and a belly distended beyond the last notch of his capacious belt, he had taken a seat outside to enjoy a passing sunbeam and a small bowl of dessert. The hot sun and the warm offal worked their somnolent charms upon the great man, and sleep unravelled his great sleeves of care. The great leonine head drooped in snoozy pleasure. The spoon dropped from a recumbent paw, making its journey from bowl to mouth to waistcoat, before clattering to the floor, crimson drops of raspberry jam marking its passage. Mrs. Bumstead, alert to the every movement of the great man, scuttled out of the kitchen in a tangle of bosoms and old dairy me's. "'Oh, Mr. Constable, sir, you've only got nodded off,' she whinnied as she bustled around collecting bowl and spoon. "'And what a mess you've made, and what will become of us?' She gamely flapped a sweaty tea-towel at him, before dropping it beside him and disappearing back inside, for something must be done. As she did so, a crocodile of children made its way back into the playground. They were returning from the laughing banks of the turpentine, where they had been undertaking a meticulous and rigorous assessment of the river-bank, looking for the imaginary discarded purse of some imaginary unfortunate wash-down river from where she had been imaginarily done away with by an imagined scorned lover. They had learnt a great deal and found nothing. The crocodile was headed up by Miss Nightingale, who, upon gaining the playground, let out a grunt of satisfaction. Nothing less than a body lay in a crumpled heap upon the ground. The evidence of great violence done was clear to see, for Melton Constable could not be roused. His peristaltic motion was such that it took every ounce of his being to maintain a healthy traction of tripe, onion, and suet pudding through the gut, such that no discernible pulse was evident anywhere but in the colon, not that her diligence was that stout-hearted it could venture there. Nonetheless, Miss Nightingale sprang into action, action she had prepared for every waking moment of her life thus far. She established a perimeter marked out by year three infants in their yellow tabards. She withdrew a notebook from her cardigan and sucked the stub of the pencil pensively. She telephoned Inspector Legerdemain, and she returned to the scene of the crime. Observing the vermilion stains upon his chest, she shook her head wearily, the weight of man's injustice to man evident in every shake. Fading casual silence, she noted a soiled tea-cloth by the recumbent frame of Melton Constable, and immediately 
join the dots. With this done, as duty dictated, the doughty inspector shortly thereafter arrived. He moodily parted the throng of lisping infants, gawping merrily at the recumbent constable, and, on noting the same evidence Miss Nightingale had, he shook his head wearily. An open and shut case, he opined from the depths of his trench coat. A cream passionnel, he murmured, hoping to import a degree of menace into his voice and failing. Take a woman of certain years, and a local grandee with a mind to higher things, and it's remarkable how very quickly love can turn to violent, premeditated murder, he concluded, holding up a hand to stop Miss Nightingale from interrupting his peroration. Well, I've seen all I need to hear. Take the children back to class. This is an educational authority matter now. And, turning on a downtrodden heel, he shuffled off towards the kitchen. Several minutes later, in the kitchen, the inspector bearded the hapless cook, who had, he proclaimed, the means, the motive, and finally the opportunity to murder our noble churchwarden. He pronounced the capitals for extra emphasis. Absolute rot, Inspector, piped a shrill voice from the assembled group of educators. I have never in all my born days heard such drivel, and that's with fourteen years of teaching the turret boy, too. Murder, indeed. As if the cook could beat a great big gentleman like Mr. Constable to death. Why, she can barely need dough these days. Moreover, there's no weapon. And, if nothing else, Mrs. Bumstead would never be roused to such heights of passion. With a face like thunder, the inspector turned to the two special constables and glowered. Keep your opinions to yourself, Miss Busybody, he demanded, ignoring the plaintive look on both her and the cook's faces. He pointed imperiously at Mrs. Bumstead. Take her away. She'll swing for this at the next governor's meeting. As Mrs. Bumstead looked tearily from Miss Nightingale to Inspector Legitimain, and around the faces of a horde of astonished children misting up the kitchen window where they had all gathered for a look, Melton Constable awoke with a lurch from his postprandial nap. Gaining the kitchen, he looked in confusedly, belched gently, and inquired after all this nonsense. The inspector looked ashen and aghast. Melton Constable glowered at the scene of the cook, handcuffed between two constables, and turned to the crestfallen inspector. Gravely, he shook a great, dew-lapped head. Placing a hand upon Miss Nightingale's shoulder, he declaimed, I hope, Miss Nightingale, that should the dread day ever come to pass when great violence is done to this goodly frame, it is to you that the authorities would entrust the task of finding the perpetrator as I know of no one more suited and more diligent in the application of correct procedure. And I know that base villain will be apprehended before evensong. Dismissed! And with that he beamed beatifically, wiped a drop of raspberry jam from his waistcoat with his forefinger, licked it, and turning upon a well-shod heel, he took Miss Nightingale's arm in his and strolled off into the evening.
The Quiet Men of England is a very broad and very shallow production, written by Brian Painting, performed by Charlie Moriarty, with original music recorded and played by Peter Vincent Ridden.